Hello, everyone. This is Jeff from Irenicast. This week, we have a wonderful interview for you with Juanita Robertson, uh, conducted by our very own Bonnie and Casey. And we're going to get right into it. I just want to let everyone know at the top of the show that if you have any questions about Juanita's work and you'd like to find out more about her or anything else mentioned in the episode that you're about to hear, the show notes for this episode are at irenicast.com slash 169. That's irenicast.com slash 169. And also, we are continuing on with our Continuing the Conversation series. So on Monday, uh, June 22nd at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, we'll be discussing this episode as a full cast. So don't forget to check that out. And if you can't make it live, don't worry. It'll be here on the podcast feed uh, next Wednesday. So without any further ado, here is our interview with Juanita Robertson. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenicast. I'm Casey. I'm Bonnie. And on the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us uh, and for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, we have my dear friend, Juanita Robertson, on today, and she is just one of the best. I will let her sort of introduce herself and uh, say who she is, but uh, it's just Bonnie and I, which is a, a rare occasion, Juanita. So um, <laughs> yeah. normally there are lots of people filling the the sound waves, and today it'll just be the three of us. So this is kind of exciting. So thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. So it's so funny when somebody asks me, like, you know, who am I? You know, one of my first answers I usually give is I'm the promise of forgiveness and reconciliation in the world. And for me, it's because according to the Dagra Medicine Wheel in West Africa, Burkina Faso, I'm a water spirit. And so the medicine I bring is forgiveness, reconciliation, wisdom, peace building, and the emotions. And uh, which just means that I have a lot of opportunities in my life to learn how to forgive, <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, could be a double-edged sword. <laughs> I also, um, my training is in, well, I, you know, lots of places, but one is I'm an OD person, organizational development person with a concentration in integral theory, which basically is how do you look at things in a more holistic way? And so I love seeing how different things connect. And I'm a little geeky that way when things show up to get excited about, uh, helping to connect the dots. I also do an awful lot of grief work, especially these days, personal grief work, family grief work, organizational grief work. I think that learning how to grieve well actually is a doorway for us to learn how to live well. The other thing that I'll put in the pot at the moment is uh, I'm co-writing a book called The Interground Railroad it's a journey, 40-day journey to remembering self and spirit, and it's designed to heal the ancestor legacy of slavery for all Americans, not just African Americans. I'm writing with a woman named Amy Halton, and she and I are, she's a white woman from the Kentucky side of the Ohio River, and I'm a black woman from the Cincinnati, Ohio side of the Ohio River. And it's our stories about our journey to freedom and what it means for all of us to find our, our own freedom. You're in the middle of that right now? Yes. <laughs> I'm in the, not only am I in the middle of that, but we just, she and I just got an invitation to go to a place in Kentucky to do healing work where um, the auction block was where my family was enslaved. Oh my goodness. 
Wow. Yeah, so we'll be driving to that location on Saturday morning and making the decision of what wants to happen in that space. Powerful work. And especially like us in this moment yes. of our history with protesters protesting the the murder of George Floyd and um, so many others. It, I want to ask the question, how do you see grief and forgiveness going together? <laughs> It's so interesting because um, my partner, Tennyson Wolf, and I are doing a class right now called um, the Wisdom. It's, it's a wisdom class, and it's about relationship to forgiveness. And the four weeks, we've decided that the journey is the first week was anger. The next week is grief. The third week is compassion. And the last week is grace. And, you know, one of the things that grief does. And, you know, and especially in a time like this is I think anger often shows up as unfelt personal grief and rage shows up as unfelt collective grief. And one of the dangers of that is that we can just dump our pain onto each other instead of actually taking the time to heal it. And, and one of my teachers, Jojo Pomaria, she has said that any pain not transformed is transferred. And so what we've been doing is transferring pain back and forth and back and forth instead of stopping to heal it. And so my hope is right now that we actually take time to do some healing of that pain. So uh, I know you pretty well, I think, Juanita, at least we're on this journey together uh, in lots of cool ways. And you have been doing all sorts of work. And so I'd love to hear some of the work that you're doing. You know, I mean, um, you you say you have you feel called to the work of reconciliation in the world but that's who you embody that's who you are and so i would love to hear like how that's playing out yeah so i feel very blessed to be invited into lots of spaces one space that i um have been invited to there's a woman she's a white woman from minnesota who asked me to hold space with her in a do better solidarity circle So we actually have scheduled three of those and they're designed to hold white people at this time and look at what is the work because people keep asking, what is, what am I to do? Another thing that I'm partnering with Amy with is we're offering a emerging church workshop. It's a three-part series and it's looking as we're in this place of dying and living systems and looking at what is it that we're co-creating together in the emerging church. You know, that's pretty exciting. The first day we posted it, we had like 40 people enroll. <laughs> wow. Another thing that we're doing, Tennyson and I, are we are doing a 16-month leadership rites of passage cohort. We recognize that in our culture, we're growing older, but we're not growing up. And we think that's because of the lack of initiation. You know, I'll also mention at this point that there's an African proverb that says that if we don't initiate our youth, they'll burn down the village just to feel its warmth. And so, you know, we have so we have such a population of adolescent adults. And the problem with that is if you don't have initiated adults, you can't have initiated elders. And if you don't have initiated elders, you can't initiate the youth. And so it perpetuates that cycle over and over again. And so we started the 16-month Leadership Rites of Passage cohort to address the issue of how do you initiate adults? And then we were stuck with, um, okay, so, you know, initiation typically around the globe is done culturally specific. How do you do a a culturally specific diverse initiation? 
And so what we decided was all of our participants have access to their ancestral DNA and they can choose um, which lineage they want to dive deeper into while they're in the program. And we're going on a journey. We're inviting people on the hero's journey. We have three retreats, which the first one is the call. The second one is the ordeal. And the last one is the return to actually invite them into their own journey. We didn't know when we were being in the middle of the ordeal that, you know, COVID would happen and the unrest would happen. You know, spirit likes to help us out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Spirit's really helping you out right now. Yes. Could you say more about initiation? You know, maybe for some of our listeners, it might be a new idea. I think the Christian church has really failed to initiate our youth in many ways. You know, we sort of do like a baptism or a little study class and then call that it. Yeah. You know, there's different kind of different initiations that we come to in our life. You know, one initiation is at two years old when people, when the kids start saying me, 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 I, mine, right? It's that it's a level or shift of consciousness about how they exist in the world. You know, when I'm talking about initiation, I'm talking about the moving from adolescent to adulthood. And that to me is, I think what initiation asks of us is that we move from being earth-centered and led in our decision-making to being spirit-centered and led in our decision-making. And so it's not that we ignore the bottom chakras. I think of initiation as happening in the center of the heart chakra. It's that the bottom part of the heart chakra and lower are rooted in the earth, which still have a little bit of fear in them. And the upper part of the heart chakra and, and up is rooted in the heavens, which is the first time there's a real dropping of the fear. And so I think initiation is, if you think of the heart chakra as an hourglass, the center of that hourglass is what initiation is. And it asks that we make that shift so that, you know, when we make, when we're making decisions that are rooted in the lower chakras, we will betray the upper ones every time. We'll betray our own global heart. We'll betray our own choice. We'll betray our own intuition and our divine guidance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I it, you made me think of you probably know this this work um, in over our heads as developmental psychologist Robert Keegan. I think he wrote that, and it, it does feel like we're in this moment where so many adults are just in over their heads. They just cannot figure out how to keep up with the day to day demands. And yeah, initiation sounds like part of the process that they missed along the way. Yeah, because we just keep running, you know, we keep running away from ourselves. The problem is you can never really get away from yourself. And so it's like a kid who like has hyped up on too much sugar and they're running in circles and running in circles and they crash, right? You know, that to me is one of the gifts of COVID is, is stopping us, trying to stop us. And actually what I found is people were still running. They actually didn't stop or even slow down. They actually started doing more. They were just doing it online. And so how do we really slow down enough so we can listen to what, what spirit is trying to tell us? You know, the divine happens in the spaces in between. And if you don't slow down, there's no room for it. You're not talking to me. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Claudina. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I, you know, in talking about where, who are the adults in the room, I don't know about all of you, but I, I look at, uh, you know, I see all the craziness happening in the world and I keep thinking, who will unify us? Where are the adults in the room that can speak to our, to our higher selves? That's what I keep asking. And I'm beginning to realize that there are not many left. We, we are continuing to look for people who can lead us, who can show up. And those who are supposed to, I, I don't think have the capacity to because they don't know how to be adults. And maybe that's a misreading, but I think what you're inviting us into, Juanita, is something that's really true. Uh, and that is we have failed to initiate uh, young people and we have failed to teach them how to be in the world and how to be ancestors. That's one of the things that I hear you say a lot also. You know, where are the ancestors? Who are the people that, that will lead us forward? I know, especially in the queer community, there are not many. The joke is that they all went to Neverland. You know, there's a lot of Neverland syndrome in the gay man world because they don't want to grow up. But what does that lead to? It leads to predatory behavior in older gay men on younger gay men. It leads to them buying out all of the Castro and making it uh, no longer a slum for queer folks, but, you know, a beautiful place for them and their friends. They fail to see what got them to where they are and they don't reach back. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, in the program design, I often say it's not a program, it's a journey, but we do have a leadership component in it. And the reason is, you know, we spend tons of money every year in this country on leadership development, but we don't have a lack of leaders. Leadership just means people are following you. It says nothing about where you're taking them. Mm-hmm. We have a lack of wise leaders. And so this question about how do we build wise leadership? And to me, that's through initiation. That is we have because only through initiation do you get the opportunity to see things from a larger perspective, to consider what benefits the whole and not just me. Absolutely. You begin to have a conversation about responsibility, which is um, part of what growing up is all about. Like not just accepting responsibility, embracing responsibility, seeing it as a blessing. Yes. And I think what, you know, what we think in this culture is that taking or giving shame, blame, or guilt is equal to owning responsibility. (laughs) And they're actually very different things. You know, shame, blame, and guilt we often go to so we don't have to take responsibility. It's where we hide. We also think that shame, blame, and guilt are emotions and they're not. I don't believe that they are. I think they're where we go to hide from emotions. And often the emotion underneath them is just deep grief. And we, we live in a culture that doesn't know how to grieve. And the problem with not knowing how to grieve is that if you don't know how to empty out what no longer serves you, you have no room to invite in the new. And so we get stuck in our old patterns. So in these times, what do you imagine grief looking like? Like how, like how do we begin that journey, right? Oh, I love that question. So I was doing a workshop recently um, called Grief and Grace for the Southern Ohio Diocese. And one of the things I started talking to them about is that growth and development and grief happens on three different layers. The egocentric, the personal layer, the ethnocentric, the communal. So whether that's organizationally, whether that's race, whether that's gender, whether that's neighborhood, and then the world-centric, this global layer. And, you know, grief also happens on a spectrum. So you have everything from losing your car keys to losing a loved one. (laughs) 
And so what it calls for us is to be in relationship with grief. You know, I'm a little bit, of, I'm a little bit strange around this. I, I said that I started writing this poem one day, all my life, I've had a love affair with grief. <laughs> and it's about how grief has changed in my relationship with it as I've matured, you know, and I think it's important that language about relationship with, there's a, the author of the book, Braiding Sweetgrass, talks about in her native tongue, the language is 80% adjectives. But in the English language, we have 70% nouns. And she says, think what happens when the majority of your language is adjectives. What it does is it breathes life into things. It makes them living, breathing, moving things that you're in relationship with, as opposed to a solid one-time thing. So being in relationship with grief moves it from being an event that I grieve to being an ongoing relationship that then breathes life into grief as well as then grief breathes life back into us. Again, I think learning how to grieve well helps us learn how to live well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you, yeah, I think that's absolutely, you know, the, the shame, blame, and guilt is often in many folks think of those things in relationship to their religion, to their spirituality. And yet it's really against it, or, you know, it's, it's certainly like, you're, I liked how you described it as something that sort of hides, we can hide under it. How do we release that? First of all, grief requires community. And in our culture that we think we can grieve alone, we rob ourselves of the opportunity to really get through the grief. So often what happens is we end up wallowing in it. And then we get a little comfortable. We let go for a while. We go back in and we wallow in it some more instead of really going through it. Because on the other side of grief, on the other side of that wound, there's a gift. And so if we don't go all the way through it, we don't get access to the gift. Grief requires community. The other thing I think is we, one of the biggest lies we tell in this culture around grief is that we all grieve differently. I don't think that's true. I think we all avoid grief differently. (laughs) And I think that story that we all grieve differently gives us permission to avoid it. But the grieving is just the feeling your emotions and letting them flow through you. We also think grief requires suffering, and it doesn't. The suffering with grief is the resistance to grief, but not grief itself. The grief itself is just sad, you know? And so part of it is being willing to come together and hold space for each other to grieve. I'm also hosting a monthly grief circle that gives people the opportunity to just for us to just come together and talk about our relationship with grief. Sometimes we do ritual in that together. Sometimes it's just a conversation, but, you know, really examining where am I with my relationship with grief now? So um, we both shared that we're both moms. Quinita and I are both moms. Mm-hmm. And I think part of raising children is raising them to know grief. How did you do that with your kids, if you don't mind sharing? Well, I think the first thing is that I always say being a parent is a constant cycle of learning how to let go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's your own grief journey. You know, it's um, in every moment. It's like, oh, they're doing something new. I used to tell my kids sometimes, okay, I know you're ready for this, but I'm not yet. Just give me a minute. I'll get there. <laughs> right? yes. know, I need some time. I, there was a woman, when my daughter was born, I asked 
a group of women to tell me what advice they would give me as a new mom for a girl in this world. And one woman said, you know, everyone will tell you to celebrate the milestones. I'm going to tell you to grieve them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that has just stayed with me. And I think part of teaching our children about grief is first of all, being willing to grieve yourself. So they bear witness to it, that there's not something taboo about it in the house. And then also holding space for them to grieve. You know, I was um, noticing when we went to shelter in place and our schools, we stopped in class schooling on Friday and we started online schooling on Monday. And I thought, we didn't even give our kids a day to freaking grieve that their whole world had shut yeah. down. Yeah, that's you know? right. What the heck is that about? I think that it's also a part of, the, I mean, it's a cultural thing around like bootstraps, right? You just push through, you just move through and then you over-medicate <laughs> as a way to respond to your inability to, to navigate grief. I don't know what you'd say to that, Juanita, but that's what it feels like. We are too afraid to confront our pain. And so instead, we just narcotize. Yes. Yes. You know, I have a friend who is an educator. And one of the things he says is that we've turned our learners into achievers and the process have stolen their humanity and they feel entitled to something for it. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think that our kids know we've turned them into products. And that's why we're seeing higher suicide, the highest suicide rates that we've ever had before. You know, when we are seeing, you know, suicide rates increase so much, then that's not a kid problem. That's an adult issue. Absolutely. It's about what can I get out of what I can do rather than what's my purpose? How am I connected to everybody else? That's such a sad way to live. Well, that and that we've disconnected to multi-generations. So we spend figure out more and more opportunities to keep um, young people in communities with kids who are their same age. So what they don't know is they don't get an opportunity to see some of the issues that they're struggling with. We all struggle with. It's part of the essence of being human. But they think it's just them. They think that nobody else understands how they feel. And they don't get that adults are still figuring it out, you know, or finding our, we all have our own journeys and it's not an event, it's a journey. And it's part of learning how to be human and it's messy and it includes all of it. I think that that's what makes the landing spot so important in terms of having these young people show up and be seen. Every month I have like uh, someone come and talk to the kids who is older than them so that they can hear what coming out has been like from people older than them who are ahead of them on the journey to let them know that it does get better and to let them know that maybe there are things that are still painful. I think that it is so important to have that intergenerational relationship. Um, I mean, I think that's one of the best things about the podcast actually, Bonnie is like people being able to tune in who maybe are just at the start of their deconstruction mm-hmm. or who are, who are beginning to like wonder about, is this real or not? You know, and to tune in to have people affirm that like, we see you, mm-hmm. we've been there. But I agree, Juanita, there are not enough spaces in the world where people feel seen. And, and I think that that is probably one of the biggest issues with church in general too. 
is that this is supposed to be the place that I'm seen. This is a place I'm supposed to be known. And so many people, that's not happening. And so they, they go, they leave just as empty as they came. Yeah. And I think people sometimes think that when they're leaving their childhood behind them or the community of their formation or ideas that people fed them as they were young growing up, that when they leave those behind them or they're no longer working for them, that there's somehow an unsurmountable amount of suffering in that rather than seeing it as it's the beginning of an initiation process. You know, you're, you're going through something, you're going to come through it and you're going to be transformed on the other side of this, which uh, Juanita, it sounds like so much of your work is related to helping to accompanying people on a journey like that. Um, what do you tell people who are afraid to get started? Yeah. I tell them we're all afraid. <laughs> like, you know, like I remember even like not just getting started, but I was sharing with a friend, a close friend of mine. Um, I taking, I was taking, getting ready to take some people into some grief work. And I said to her, I don't understand why I'm always still afraid. I've done this so many times. And and she says, oh, honey, she's like, uh, it seems like she's like, I'd be worried about you if you weren't. It seems like there's some reverence in that, you know, and taking people in places and not knowing what's going to happen in those spaces. Now, I'm I'm really careful and responsible. I don't take anybody any place I can't bring them back out from. <laughs> but I think that that fear is because it's a sign to me when I get afraid, I'm probably more likely to do something than less likely because it's a signal to me that some change is coming, you know, some growth wants to happen. And it's my ego just saying to me, Oh no, I don't want to let go (laughs) from the space. And so I've learned to like, to notice that that's there, but fear isn't real. Whenever I'm in the present moment, I'm never afraid. And so it's just a signal for me to get present. Fear only exists in the past or in the future, never in this present moment. Love only exists in this present moment. So much wisdom. So much wisdom. So talk to me about love in this present moment. Uh, Because there are a lot of people, I imagine, Juanita, with all that's happening around COVID, around the murder of George Floyd, where it doesn't feel like there is love in this present moment. And I I just want to hear from you. I want to hear about this love that you speak of. I want to hear about the grief and how to move through it. Um, because I think there are a lot of people who are waking up, right? Like it feels like the blind man, like the scales are falling off and people are pissed. And, and there are a lot of people of color who are like, uh, well, welcome. Welcome to <laughs> the conversation. You are one of the best people I know, quite frankly. And to hear you sort of say, there is love in this present moment, and we can move through this grief. I I mean, I trust you a lot, and I would just love to hear uh, how you just hear from you, I guess. I think that um, love doesn't always look like we think it should or will. You know, most of us are raised in places where we learn that attachment is love. But it's not love, it's just attachment. Attachment has this desperate quality to it. And so learning what it means to love ourselves and to love another takes work. First of all, a curiosity of even wanting to know. You know, I think asking the question 
the moment we ask the question, it starts trying to find its way to you (laughs) because the universe wants to prove us right. You know, when we really get that the world is out to gift us and not to get us, we ask different questions. You know, Einstein said that if he had an hour to figure out, you know, what the answer to something was, he would spend 55 minutes figuring out what the question was first. (laughs) And then the answer would come easy. But we educate our children and we been educated in a system that says the worst thing is to not know the right answer. So we have a country that has such a such a low question literacy rate. <laughs> and getting curious and learning deep, what's the question underneath the question? Tennyson always says, what's the thing underneath the thing, right? <laughs> um, and it's that piece about the first question usually isn't the real one. It's like, what's underneath that? What are you really asking? So that we get really curious. And that's the place that growth and development happens. But, you know, I often will say some of the hardest people to to work with are, and and I think hardest and funnest for me, (laughs) is clergy, um, teachers, and social workers. Because they're so taught that they're supposed to know. And there's no growth in that space. Yeah. And so can we surrender and be curious with each other? You know, that to me is part of it. The other piece is you're right. I think that people are waking up. You know, it was interesting for me. I said, I kind of felt like a little bit of an alien when COVID and everybody's shelter in place happened and everybody was so afraid about, you know, dying. And one of the things I said is they don't realize they're the walking dead already. You're already freaking dead, you know? (laughs) And for me, it's much more about how I want to live than me being afraid to die. I don't think our survival really is any of our business. I think that the trauma makes us believe that God left us. And when we believe God left us, we think we're responsible for our survival. But our job isn't about our survival. Our job is to show up and and to, to do what you've promised to do this lifetime. You know, I love in the Matrix, the second Matrix, where Neo um, meets the Oracle in the courtyard. And she asked him if he wants a piece of candy. And he says, well, if you already know the answer, is it really a choice? And she says to him, you didn't come here to make the choice. You've already made it. You've come here to learn why you've made the choices that you've made. We freaking think we've come here to make the choice. Instead of we already have these sacred contracts with people because we've already made the choice. You know, and it comes, it depends on which way you view this journey. Either you see it as, We're spiritual beings that are having a human experience or that we're human beings that sometimes have a spiritual one. And whichever lens you're looking through makes all the difference. What questions are you holding right now? I think for me, one of the things that's working me (laughs) as I'm finding myself being thrown out into the world a little bit more (laughs) is... The Spirit's trying to teach me that safety is never external, that safety is internal. And, you know, because of my own trauma, I started to believe that, like, I needed to, like, one of the things that makes me really good, I think, at my work is when I'm in a room with people, I know where everybody is. I can feel it. And I know where, where they need to go for that next layer. Well, if I'm in a room with 300 people, I can't track everybody. <laughs> 
And so for me, there was some fear in that and stepping into bigger and bigger places or audiences because the fear is that I wouldn't be safe. And so really learning safety is never external. It's internal. The universe wants to prove you right. So whatever we believe is true, that will be reflected back to us, conscious and unconscious beliefs. And so when things happen, instead of asking the question, why is this happening to me? I ask the question, why is this happening for me? What was spirit and I co-creating? What did we want me to learn? What is, you know, to grow my spirit? Because I believe I'm a spiritual being having a human experience, you know? So what is this experience trying to get me to learn so I can learn it and I don't have to do this freaking thing again? (laughs) Go on to the next one, right? Right. The other thing I think, the other question that's a big question is, um, what piece of the responsibility is mine? So I have that question. Another thing I think I'll, I'll add here, just because I think Casey might know this about me, but um, Tennyson asked me years ago, what question, if you knew it, would change your life forever? And my response was, oh, oh God, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. And so he says, what question could you live into for two to three years? And so the question I've been living into probably now for the past six years is, is what if I really did believe that everything was in divine order? What questions would I ask differently? How would I treat people differently? How would I move through the world differently? You know, I think we say things all the time, but we don't really question like, so what would it mean if I really did believe that? You know, how would I be different? And so we get a chance, like for me, for that question to be living in that question, what it means is I get challenged by it all the time, right? Something shows up and I'm like, okay, this doesn't look, because I want to, you know, rely on my five senses, right? This doesn't look like it's in divine order. (laughs) But we always don't get insight in the moment. Sometimes we only know why it had to play out the way it did in reflection, you know? So trusting something greater than myself. Trusting that we really are connected. And so what that means is that if I'm honoring me, then I am honoring you. If I don't have the skills or the love or the compassion for myself, there's no way I could ever freaking give it to you. And we can learn these things, right? Oh, we can remember these things. There you go. They're already in us. And community's job is supposed to be to remind us of the truth of who we are. Because we all forget. But we do just the opposite in most of our communities. We say you are what you've done, not you are who you are. So if you lie, you're a liar. If you steal, you're a thief, which just then makes us believe it, which actually reinforces that instead of saying, no, that's not who you are. Let us remind you of the truth of who you are. You're not a liar. These are the things that you've done in the past that give me evidence of that. Because we all forget, you know, energy follows attention. So why would we focus energy on things that we don't want instead of what we do? When we equate people with their behavior or what they've done, then what happens to the sense of belonging to one another? Yeah. Um, You know, again, I think because we can't give what we don't have, oftentimes we do that because we we don't know who we are. You know, we think we are what we've done. Not many of us sit with the question of, would I be okay with myself if I didn't do not one more thing? Mind your own business. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Juanita. Yeah. It's hard really knowing that our relationships that we're in, they bring to us what we need for our own healing. And they're not always easy. You know, it's not easy. It's not an easy walk. But what it does is it has lots of gifts for us. And how do we learn to love and accept those parts of ourselves that we've cast out? You said something about safety, safety being internal. How do you see the connection between safety and survival? Hmm. Well, that question will have to go back for me. Our stories can only live in context. I have a friend, Shanae Swartz, who uh, has a PhD in narrative therapy in South Africa. And one of the things she says is that all our experiences are like all the stars in the sky. And what we do is we grab a hold of a handful of those stars and we build a constellation around it and build a story around it. <laughs> but all those other stars are still up there, right? Yeah. And she says, and then we have belief systems that hold that story in place. But stories only exist in context. So like there's parts of the continent of Africa where the story of bulimia and anorexia can't even exist because there's not a belief that then is better. And so for me, you know, because I believe that we're spiritual beings having a human experience, the safety piece, it comes into play because I think that my safety isn't my responsibility. It really, or my survival, I'll say, is none of my business. You know, that whether I live for two days or 50 years, my question and my focus is how do I want to live, not whether I'm afraid to die. Oftentimes, our purpose isn't something that we want to do or a calling. Amen. (laughs) And I think that's by design because I think it keeps our ego out of it which actually gives me the freedom to say whatever I want, because most of the time I'm wishing that whatever I'm called to do, somebody will say, no, we don't want her. (laughs) So, you know, if I, it gives some freedom when I'm not attached to that. You know, one of the things I think is I'm in deep conversation with, with Amy Houghton in this book in the Underground Railroad is how do we heal the ancestor legacy of slavery in this country? And how does it look different for white people than people of color? You know, one of the things I think is we have this misconception that the legacy of slavery is only carried in the wound of slavery by people of color. But to enslave another, there's a part of you that has to be enslaved as well. And white people haven't really recognized that they're carrying the slave archetype as well in that legacy. And the shadow side of that archetype is being a slave to a person, a thing, or even an idea. But the light side of the slave archetype is being a slave to the divine spirit within. It actually teaches us self-mastery. It's how we find our freedom. And so for me, we all swim in this water of what's right, real, and true is white and male. And until we acknowledge that and start to ask a different question or create a different yardstick, We keep recreating new systems that are still rooted in that. But if that's not your yardstick, what we consider privileged isn't privileged. It's not privileged to be disconnected from your heart. Right. You know, what we even consider as being healed isn't healed. You know, it changes everything. And so Mm -hmm. this question about what's the new yardsticks that we're creating, not just what what are the new systems. But what yardstick are we using to determine whether that's what we even want? 
Mm-hmm. How do we get ready to create a, a new yardstick? Because the narrative would have to change a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, thankfully we can each do it individually. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we can start there. Um, and it's just even asking the question, even asking the question, because the universe wants to prove you right. So you even ask the question of what does it mean to look to, to be healed? Or what does it mean to change my yardstick? And then what happens is that you'll be sent experiences that'll help teach you. We think that our belief systems come from our experiences, but it's really the other way around. Our experiences are called to us from our belief systems because the universe wants to prove you right. And so when we ask the question, it's already working its way to us. So we, we can start, you know, just by being curious and asking the question. In this wisdom class that we're doing about our relationship to forgiveness, we're talking about what is forgiveness. And one of the things I've said is, I don't think we know how to forgive. I don't think it's a human thing. I think it's a divine one. In my life, the way forgiveness has happened, I've had to just be open to it showing up. But there's no, you know, we tell these, this, these steps to take the forgiveness. You know, I think we can say we forgave, but that doesn't really mean that we've done it. That doesn't mean that we've embodied forgiveness. For me, it's the, it's kind of like sunshine coming through the window. <laughs> so it's like, if you want the sun to fall on you, you have to have the windows open. And so usually my prayer is help to enable me to know what it feels like to have forgiven this person. Or because I'm a pretty patient person and so I can get really self-righteous when I'm angry at somebody <laughs> because I think that if I'm angry with you, you must deserve it. <laughs> and so, so, you know, sometimes my prayer is help me to be at a place where I even want to forgive this person. You know, and then what often happens is about three o'clock in the morning, I wake up in my bed sobbing and something has released and it's, it's gone. You know, it's, it's by grace. It's not by will. Yeah. There's, uh, there's so much here. To, uh, <laughs> and um, that's a huge gift to us and to our listeners because almost after every single thing you say, I want to take five minutes to just think about it, and yeah. internalize it and reflect on it. I think one of the things that I would say is that I am so hopeful right now. Are you? Yes. I was going to ask, are you worried about us? Oh, are you no. worried about a collective us? No, I'm you're hopeful. Like singing and dancing in the shower kind of hopeful. <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling that way too. One of the reasons that I'm hopeful, I figured out I was in a argument with a friend because <laughs> he pissed me off because he wasn't hopeful and I was. <laughs> and um, and one of the things I said to him in my angry moment <laughs> was that one of the reasons we're in the situation we're in is because white men with all their privilege can't find their way to hope. Mm. And I said, let's be really clear. My ancestors were marched into dungeons and then put in the bottom of slave ships and taken across the ocean and then toiled in fields and still are in bondage. I am not just hopeful. I'm freaking hope itself. <laughs> and that peace without hope is a luxury of the privileged. And when we're in the present moment, 
which the only thing that exists there is love, there is hope. I think sometimes we think because we're really emotional at times that that's rooted in the heart. But I would suggest that maybe it's not. Because if you're really rooted in the heart, you're not in fear. And that's that. That's the shroud, fear. Yeah. Yeah, we get so afraid. Because we think it's real. I remember I was doing some, we called journey exercises with friends. We were doing ritual, quarterly ritual with a group of women I used to do. And this particular time, we just were going to go into journey and listen for where what was calling to us. And that particular day, I was just really tired and lonely. And I remember saying to them before going into journey, like, the deeper I go, the lonelier I feel. And I went into journey and the ancestors showed up for me and they said, no, you made it up. <laughs> and they said, cause they talked to me that way. And they said, you made it up. You're not lonely cause we're here. They said, the problem with you is that the spirit world has to become more real to you than this one. And I think that, you know, that's what it means where it says about being in this world, but not of it, that we are having this human experience but we have to know there's something more going on. There's something bigger than us. And when we don't have that, of course we feel a lack of hope and desperation and fear and concern. Mm-hmm. And I think um, speaking as a white person, I think that there's a, a huge disconnect between ourselves and our ancestors, the ancestors. And there's fear and calling upon them. Yeah, because because you have to surrender. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, I think that surrender is a big thing. I think the thing that we don't understand with the ancestors is we think, especially the ancestors we viewed as being bad here on the earth plane, but that's a human judgment, not a spiritual one, I think. You know, we think that, Oh, I don't want to call that person. But actually, those are the ancestors that probably can help you the most because they know what their actions, they can see more than now that they're in the world, the land of the ancestors than they could when they were here. So they know what their actions did. And not only that, their freedom is connected to ours. Melodoma Somme of West Africa says that the ancestors in the West are some of the most unemployed ancestors in the world. (laughs) 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 Don't call on them. And and the thing I love, like... So they got time. They got time. (laughs) (laughs) They're wanting to help you because their freedom is connected to ours. And so it's like, it's like in Lord of the Rings, that second movie where the king goes to the ghost soldiers and the king asks them to come and help, actually demands, you know, if he shows up, they have to, the, the story says, they have to come. If the king asks, they have to come. And in coming and helping the king in the battle, they earn their freedom. Their freedom is attached to ours and ours is attached to theirs. They don't get to run the show. I think we like, we have free will. And so that's why, unless we call on them, they can't intervene on our behalf. They can't just show up and start messing with stuff. (laughs) And, you know, one of my teachers, Jojo Pomerio used to say uh, that you don't have to be a slave to anything, not even to, not even to spirit. We get to choose. 
And it's not a mama choice. I always say mama choices. You can do A or B, but we really want you to pick A. (laughs) (laughs) Like you get to choose which way you do this. You can, and we don't get to choose whether or not we evolve, but we do get to choose whether we do it the easy way and the hard way. And one of the things that, one of the reasons I have hope is, first of all, we've chosen to do it the hard way. We keep like digging in our heels and don't want to listen when spirit is pushing us, but it'll get louder and louder until we pay attention because we don't have the choice on whether we go or not. You just have the choice of how stubborn you're going to be until you go. Absolutely. And those big obstacles that I think we like to add layers to, shame, guilt, blame, right? We just keep piling that on so it's even bigger. So it prevents us from having to move into what we're being called into. Yes. And it takes courage. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned about courage, which, you know, again, I'm kind of geeky. So I like things come up and they like trigger other stuff in me. And um, I had a friend I was in the hot tub with, and she was saying that she had just given a speech. And in the speech, someone said to her, you know, or she said she was looking at the word courage. And for the first time realized that the word courage had the word rage in it. And she said, she realized every courageous act has a bit of rage in it. And then I started thinking about that. And I started thinking about the book, Iron John by Robert Bly. And in the book, Iron John, he says that anger is personal, rage is archetypal, it's communal. And so I thought, what if by definition, courage is communal? And then I was telling a couple of people this because it was working me and I'm, you know, I'm an external processor. (laughs) And so three people in a row said to me, well, The beginning, the root word core, comes from the Latin word heart, heart rage. And so I looked up um, at the same time I was on Port Townsend and a friend gave me a book by James Hillman. And he talks about the three different philosophies of the heart. And in that, he talks about the blood pumping heart, the physical heart. He talks about the heart of the matter of being pulled from our passions from the inside out, what, you know, has us move in that way. And he talks about the heart of something, the essence, the heart of of a thing or the essence of a thing. What I think is true is that choosing and acting courageous is moving from a personal individual fear to honoring a collective truth. And in the process, We serve all three philosophies of the heart. Our physical heart gets healthier. Our heart of what we're passionate about grows. And the essence of who we are is more solid. And you think that's what's happening now, collectively? I think we have lots of moments of it. And what what, another piece of what makes me hopeful about it is you can't not know what you know. And so now in the collective psyche, we have the image of white people making a line in between the police and people of color. Now in our collective psyche, we have the image of policemen getting down on one knee and asking for forgiveness from protesters. Now in our psyche, we have all these things that are happening, the policemen joining the march with the protesters over and over again. That changes who we are. You know, we can help each other remember we've been here together now. The one thing that I think is missing in the conversation, though, is we keep talking about what's needed to heal us, 
But policemen have one of the highest, they have the highest domestic violence rate. They have the highest substance abuse rate. They have the highest suicide rate than any other demographic. And remember earlier, I said any pain not transformed is transferred. So of course they keep dumping their pain. And so until we start fighting for them to be healthier, we're not going to shift the situation as long as we have police officers, you know, but we need to be concerned because we're connected. We need to be concerned about their health. If that is, you know, the responsibility is always on the one most healed. And we've been ignoring the fact that they are the largest demographics of those three areas. Can you just say again, uh, who is it upon to do the healing? Mm. The responsibility is always on the ones most healed because you can see more of the picture. You know, there was a woman who I was working with her organization and we were doing open space. So they were having individual conversations and I overheard her speaking with her group. She was the only woman of color in a group of um, white people in her organization. And she said, you know, I'm tired of having to teach you and educate you. You need to go and learn for yourself. And then later that day, she was helping me walk to my car and take my stuff to the car. And she says, you know, I really want to learn from you. And I said to her, well, I'm about to tell you something you're not going to (laughs) like. And she said, what? And I said, you know, I heard you say that it's not your job to teach them, but it is. The responsibility is always on the one most healed. But I said, your issue is you're using their freaking yardstick to even decide who's more healed. But if the, if you don't use their yardstick, then it changes the whole picture. Yeah. So, I mean, the question I'm going to live with as a result of this conversation <laughs> has to do with yardsticks. What is my yardstick? And um, what's the one that I want in order to create our the world that I want to see? Well, even in- co-create. What we think is just, this is what we do, or this is what should happen, even down to timing. I was telling um, Tennyson, actually, we were talking about our meetings, and I was saying that we, we have uh, meetings and then we have friend calls. Oftentimes, he lives in Utah, and I'm in Cincinnati. And I said, it takes me longer to get in to a friend call. And I said, my white male friends are the only ones that I know that schedule our friends friend meetings, like, you know, like that schedule it in a time slot like that. Like, you know, but culturally that's not what I do. That that's not an alignment. So if we're doing that, even the expectation that we would do that, being in community then means that we have to come up with an agreement of what works, what works for both of us. And that's not always easy because diversity isn't always easy. But every time I learn something about myself, Especially when I do it in a way that I don't make him responsible for what's showing up for me. You know, when I keep it clean, when I know that if something's showing up that's really triggery for me, it really has nothing to do with him. He's just playing his part. Right. <laughs> if we could all think about our triggers that way, it, it would be really helpful. 
Yeah, I always say with triggers, the the misconception, people always talk about their triggers, like it's something that you're supposed to do, but your trigger by definition is yours. Okay. <laughs> There's nothing I can do about that. That's yours to clean up. That's not mine. <laughs> Right. And in some ways, when you when you experience a trigger, it's like super useful information. Yeah. Then you can use that and reflect on it and yeah, grow. It's trying to help you, right? Because trauma right. was healed, so it'll always flow to the surface. So you have an opportunity to heal it. And then you get to choose whether you're going to do the work to lean into and heal whatever that wound is. Right. But if you're in if you're trigger avoidant. Yeah. Be... And we can't heal it by ourselves. So there's a piece that, you know, we've lost the importance of spiritual guides in this culture, but you can't see the water you're swimming in, right? (laughs) And so we need someone to reflect ourselves back to us. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been a really, really good conversation, Juanita. Yes. And timely, you know, it's, uh, we are in this moment together which we will remember over and over again, I'm sure. Yes. It has lots of medicine in it for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is there anything um, that you would like to close out with today, Juanita, and then let us know um, how we can reach you? If there are listeners who, who are so moved by this conversation as I was, I know that people will want to connect with you. And so how can they do that? Yeah. So one of the things I think I would just add is, one of the things that gives me hope actually is that the protest was going on as long as it has been. And the reason that gives me hope is it gives us an opportunity to move from the anger to the grief underneath. And that's where the healing is. <laughs> and where I can be reached is at my website, www.nazuzu.com. And Nazuzu is in Z-U-Z-U. And there's all my work that I'm doing, I'm posting there. And um, it's a great place to reach out. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And um, I'm sure you'll find some new folks reaching out to you as a result of um, your time with us today. And hopefully once your book is done, you will, maybe you yes. can join, maybe you can join the entire crew. That'd uh, be great. I think that they would, I think they would love to have you. What do you think? Yeah. It would be great to have me and Amy because the book, you know, from a white woman's perspective and a woman of color's perspective would be really wonderful to come on. Yes. That That would be fabulous. And I mean, yeah, God bless you on all of that work. Thank you for doing it. Well, that will do it for us for us this week. If you enjoy Arenacast and would like to join the work we are doing, please consider donating to our PayPal link at arenacast.com slash PayPal. We are committed to keeping the show free for listeners, but there are costs involved and your financial support helps us out. That's arenacast.com slash PayPal. Arenacast is also a nonprofit organization, so your donations are tax deductible. You can support the show simply by making sure you've subscribed to the show or on whatever app you listen to. And if the platform allows it, please leave a rating or a review. We love to hear from you. So for this week, I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. Thanks for joining the conversation. 